Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out why Joni really loves Chachi. Uh, So, uh, today I wanted to have, for a couple weeks now, um, I've wanted to have uh, my friend and uh, one of my favorite historians, uh, Vin Canato, Vincent Canato, or as I've called him for 25 years, Vincenzo, uh, back on, because there's just a whole bunch of history stuff that I've been noodling, and um, because I like talking to him. And so, because under the under Article 2 of the Constitution, I have total authority to do what I want with my own podcast. So um, that's what I'm going to do. Vin, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So um, uh, we talked a little bit about what we were going to talk about, which is more preparation than I usually get um, with most of the guests, although they usually have like a specific book to pedal, so it's a little different. But um, it'll be a few years till I have a book. Yeah, this is another book. Another book. Yes, yes. yes. I, I can tell. I can tell you about all of my um, being shut out of archives. I was supposed to be in Rome last week uh, doing research at the Vatican. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that did happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see. Uh, that. Although they, they they reopened this week, um, I would missed it by one week. The, like, but like the archives reopened. The archives, yeah, reopened uh, Jan, uh, June first. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to be there last week. I'm I'm scheduled to go now in October. Uh, the, the process for getting a, a reservation at the Vatican is, as you can imagine, Byzantine. Yeah. Um, you know. well, interesting choice of words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's sort of like we went to we were in Rome like seven years ago. We went to to see the Pope, you know, in the big outdoor thing. And and I remember just to get tickets to see that, like you actually have to fax in your request. Right. This is only seven years ago. Right? Right? <laughs> they <did> faxing. <laughs> And then you had to like show up a day before and like stand in this line and to get like a card. And then you had to go and stand in this line to actually get your ticket. Uh, so, yeah. So, so getting into the Vatican archives is, uh, is interesting. Well, I mean, I can't. there was like with, I mean, there's, there's some opposite of Moore's law thing about bureaucracy, but there's probably some rule of social science that says that it's, that efficiencies become inefficiencies over time with bureaucracies. There was probably a moment, maybe not with the fax machine, but there was probably a moment when that the original system that was created for those for that sort of procedure was a way to really streamline the operation. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And now it's not. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, instead of waiting like, you know, a, a two years to get your ticket, you know, you only have to wait <laughs> two months. That's right. Yeah. Wait, um, wait for the white smoke to come out of the chimney to get your thing right. into the archives. <laughs> then, then you have 30 seconds to get in the door. Um, all right, uh, let's, where to begin? Um, uh, since it's in the news, we'll front load the, 
some of the the closer to the the, the, the the rank punditry adjacent commentary up front. Um, uh, as you may have heard, uh, our fearless leader has emerged victorious from the smoke and pepper spray in the the great battle of Lafayette Park. Um, and many people are angry. This morning, we're recording this on Thursday morning, and the thing that seems to upset more people of this, of this sort of woke blue checkmark variety wasn't that, but the fact that the New York Times op-ed page ran a piece by Senator Tom Cotton making the case. I mean, I don't entirely agree with him, but it's a reasonable position. It's a position that something like 60% of the American people <laughs> seem to agree with. Um, and there are people who are, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if some junior editor from the New York Times walks out into Herald Square nearby and upends a jerry can of gasoline over themselves and sets themselves on fire in protest of this great outrage. So um, this is all segue to the fact that there are lots of people who see parallels to 1968 in all of this. I'm a deep and abiding skeptic of these parallels for granular reasons, but what is your first impression of this whole rich tapestry of democracy? Well, I think first of all, it's the um, the pro- I'm skeptical as well. There's this problem of history by analogy. So you know, like 2020 is just like 1968, or we see this in foreign policy. You know, the Iraq is just like Vietnam, or the flip side is we have to go to a you know we have to go into Iraq and do something because uh, Munich, right? It's Munich. You, you take the analogy that you want and you try to fit it in. Uh, and it's always problematic because that's not how history works. But yeah, we can look at 1968. It's the, the period of kind of the, the most widespread rioting and, and social disorder that we've had in protests um, and sort of try to glean from that. But this idea that, oh, the, the, 19, the 2020 presidential election will look just like 1968. Well, half the people say, oh, Trump will end up like Nixon. He'll use the riots to, to sort of coast a re-election. And then half the people say, no, he's really LBJ and, and he's going to get drowned by all this. You know, so pick your analogy. And that's, that's the thing. That's why it doesn't, doesn't quite work. Um, no, There's also I mean, we no George in, Wallace in any of that equation, which is, was hugely important to Nixon's strategy. You know? no. And there's and there was well, I was going to say there was no pandemic in 1968, but I, I think the, the 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 bad flu begins late 1968. Yeah. Right? This this flu outbreak that none of us really knew about, uh, we all kind of discovered and learned about. But yeah, now there's no pandemic or, or massive, um, basically recession. Yeah. There was Vietnam. Uh, job. But. There's Vietnam, but, but people forget the 1960s were actually a really good time economically for the country. It was right. an economic from you know, around 63 to 69, 70 was a boom period uh, economically in American history. And then around 69, 70, there's a small recession. And then um, and then we started to begin the 70s, uh, which were bad. So, yes. What? Which were bad. The 70s. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And there's, there has to be some historical consensus on this in your profession. 70s were bad, right? <laughs> the 70s were, but, but then there's also there's the new which is the 70s were really bad but there's and this, there's a point to this like all kinds of good stuff this is also like we were talking about this earlier that this is like the the period of of hollywood this is one of the great periods of american filmmaking is the yeah. 1970s yeah. um culture you know, music think about you know, deregulation with, with jimmy carter dereg right this this sort of comes out of this uh, in People forget that, that lots of liberals joined on to deregulation because it was good for consumers. It was good for the average American. Right. Uh, and that was the argument people like Ted Kennedy made. Um, but so, I mean, so 
it seems to me that among the problems with the 68, I mean, let's just catalog them for a second. Cause uh, first of all, it's not right now as violent and as bad as all of this stuff is. It's not nearly as violent as things were in 68. Um, yeah. You know, never mind just sort of street violence. You know, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and and MLK were big deals, you know, and they were and they were and justifiably so. But they were particularly big deals because they were for understandable reasons, particularly MLK imbued with this hopefulness about the future thing. And to see them both killed was crushing. So it wouldn't even be akin to biden being assassinated today and i don't want that to happen but that's as close as kind of it would be more like if imagine if obama were the presumptive nominee and you saw him assassinated right now that it would be that kind of crushing freak out thing yeah and again not wishing for any of these kinds of things just pointing it out um and then there's the fact that the that the nixon law and order stuff really wasn't all of that racial. I mean, I know some of your friends like to make it racial and, and Nixon played racial games later, but he was trying to distinguish himself from Wallace at the time, right? Who was like hardcore being racial about everything. Um, he goes, yeah, I mean, yeah he, it, Nixon kind of runs as the moderate. It's a sort of a, he's the guy and you can kind of see that, you know, if Biden, you know, Biden might take the same Try it's, it's he's the kind of guy, the reassuring guy. You know, I'm not Wallace. We're not doing this, but yet I'm not the failure of Johnson. Um, you can, you know, you can trust me. I'll restore order, but not in any kind of right. It, it was a it was sort of kind of a moderate, uh, moderate political tact he took in '68, and Wallace allowed him to do that. And it was also an implicit swipe at Goldwater, right? I mean, yeah. Goldwater was. And look, I'm a, I'm a Goldwater fan, not about everything, but I'm a, I'm a Goldwater fan. I'm a Goldwaterite in many respects. But um, he was viewed by elites, particularly the much more powerful back then, sort of Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party, yeah. as basically a Sarah Palin. And yeah. like the, the party made this huge mistake in 64 by going that way. And here's this guy that we nominated in 60. He's a reasonable, good, he was Ike's vice president he's for eight sake. years. Yeah. Vice president for eight years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's he's, he's, safe... he comes out of a more moderate wing of the party then. Um, not the Rockefeller wing, right? He's still, he's still of the West and that makes him still kind of suspicious to some Easterners. Right. Some of the, they, they never completely trusted him. Um, but yeah, but he's, he's not Goldwater. He's not running his Goldwater. He's, he, you know, implicit in, in 68 is, you know, I'm not going to talk about dropping nuclear bombs on, on the Soviets. That's, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a state. Right. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> what are, what are two. Um, and, and then there's a point you brought up, which is simply that uh, Trump is the incumbent. And a law and order argument, I'm going to re restore law and order when law and order broke down on your watch just as a complete, particularly, it seems to me, I mean, I, I don't want to push you into your, I don't want to activate your MAGA sense, but. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a great MAGA sense. <laughs> um, I really don't. But, um, just give me all your time. But the, uh, um, the general sense of chaos that yeah. I think Trump has generated, not just now, but over the last three years, doesn't make him a credible messenger for a return to normalcy law and order type message. It just, it just doesn't, um, at least not with the voters that it's supposed to be intended to. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he had the reelection teed up right before all this, it was the economy. It was relative, you know, it was peace and prosperity basically. 
Um, and then this stuff happened, the pandemic and the protests. Um, and they should be custom made. Both of them should be custom made for, you know, quote unquote, presidential leadership, whatever that amorphous concept. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't require huge statesmanship. It requires a kind of a steady hand. Uh, and he just hasn't been able to do that. So now, you know, how does he go back and say, right, you know, trust me, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this. Um, you know, the problem for Biden is Biden's not a change agent either, right? And, and, and these kinds of calls like, you know, after all these, you know, it's been 50 years, we need to do something. And, you know, Joe Biden's been in Senate for 30, 30 plus years and was vice president for eight years. He's not exactly a change agent. I mean, his, I think his best argument is that he is stability, you know, he's a trusting hand, he's an old hand, all that stuff. Um, and I think that's going to be the play towards moderate suburbanites. Um, I don't know what Trump, but who knows three or four months from now, who knows what things are going to look like? Nobody knows. I wouldn't want to, I would want to bet on anything. I agree with you entirely. Like you know, this, this thing about an historical analogies drives me crazy because the it's, it's, you know, it's such a, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind yeah. of thing. If you only know a tiny little bit of that history, then you're constantly finding parallels in the little bit of history that you know, and, and there's not much there. I mean, I always used to drive me it used to drive me nuts how every every single military engagement the U.S. had had to be Vietnam again. Well, you know, what about the Spanish American War? Isn't that a good analogy for some of these things? Sure. Or whatever? Um, <laughs> but yeah, but the the flip side too is that you know conservatives Republicans were playing the Munich card for a long right. You know, how yeah. do you what do you do when you have a dictator? You don't appease a dictator, right? We we learned that from Munich. Therefore, right. you know, when you see a Saddam or someone else, there's only one real choice. Uh, yeah, no, these, these analogies, um, yeah, I got kind of pushed in this direction a few years ago when de Blasio gets reelected, right? There was a, a big push, especially on the right, for people to say, oh, the 70s all over again. The 70s are coming back. And, and I, think I, did a, I think I did an article for the Wall Street Journal, and I think they put a headline sort of like that on there. And I didn't believe that. I mean, I, I think de Blasio is, is a mess, um, but it's not the 70s over again. There's, you know, no matter, you know, no matter how bad New York has been getting, especially before the pandemic, you know, crime is still nowhere close to where it was in the late yeah. 60s and 1970s. And there are yeah. reasons for that. So that's why you can't just say, oh, it's going to be in the 70s all over. History is going to repeat itself. That's another one of the great um, cliches, right? History repeats itself. And it's like, well, no, it really doesn't. I mean, there are there are trends, there are patterns you can kind of see, um, but it doesn't repeat itself. So I have a weird digression on that because yeah. I, I think that you can make a pretty good case that history used to repeat itself in certain ways, um, not in the sort of obvious, let's just play the game all over again kind of way. Um, it's sort of like, by analogy, Thomas Malthus gets all this crap for being wrong, but he was right about everything that came before him. <laughs> and it was just like what he was doing was he was extrapolating from this pattern that was pretty well founded about population growth exceeding the supply of resources and then population crashes and gets back into equilibrium, blah, 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 blah. And that's really how things work, though, for a lot of human history. And then technology and innovation allowed us to break that cycle. And so you could I think you could make a bigger case for history repeating itself prior to, say, 1650, you know, kingdoms flourish, then they get lazy and decadent, you know, all the Roman historians with the cycles of history kind of stuff, and from, you know, ascendant to golden age to decay, um, 
I'm sure I'm being unfair to the really unique qualities of the Ming dynasty or whatever, but you, you know the point? I mean, there, I, I but just think it's, it's, that's why historians should be making predictions on the future based on what happened in the past, right? Right. You know, who in 1600 would have guessed that there would have been an industrial revolution? Right. Which would, right. which, which changes, which disrupts this pattern. Uh, you know, I always like to say, I'm, you know, I'm a historian. I, I, I can't predict the future. I don't know. I, I don't look at the past and therefore say, well, this is going to happen. There's an article I read the other day by a historian who I, I don't know him personally, but I read his stuff and I quoted him in one of my books and he does pandemics, epidemics, public health. And it was, Oh, 1918, here's what happened. Some people, some cities opened up early and they got had outbreaks. Other people did not open. They had fewer, they had less of an outbreak. So therefore, we shouldn't open up now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it works that way because I don't, and I honestly don't know. I, we might have a great big outbreak. I don't know. Um, if we do have an outbreak, I wonder how much of it is going to be driven by all the protests that we've had. Um, but you can't simply say, oh, in 1918, this is what happened. Therefore, you know, here's what our reopening policy should be. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it should inform our thinking. It's good to know that we had a massive influenza outbreak that killed 600,000 people in one year in 1918 and 1919. Um, it's good to know that people wore masks in 1918, 1919. It's not some sort of conspiracy today to force yeah. America, right? You, you look at photos of 1918, people are wearing masks. Soldiers are wearing masks. Like, that's, uh, that's understandable. Well, but according to Ru- uh, uh, Rusty Reno, that makes them all cowards. Right, exactly. But anyway, we, right. Well, and and, and that, I think that's one of the responses on Twitter to him was a picture of, you know, World War One troops marching in formation, all with masks, right? <laughs> that's, they're not cowards, and that makes perfect sense from a public health perspective. Um, but it doesn't say what, you know, in, in, you know, should my kids go back to school in the fall? It, 1918 is not going to answer that question. What's going to answer that question is 2020 and what's happening now. Yeah. Where it's going. No, I mean, it's like, um, you know, I remember reviewing, remember that, um, what was her name? Wendy Shalit? Oh yeah. 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 She was, had that, you know, she was the, the leader of the the literally dozens of people who were in favor of, of neo Victorianism in the early nineties or mid nineties. And I remember it was the only, I think the only piece I ever wrote for reason I reviewed her book and the main problem I had with it, other than I thought it was just sort of silly was that it was, utterly failing to take into account the differences between now and the sort of a uh, century and a half ago in the sense of, you know, gentlemen used to leave calling cards and that's how they made appointments to talk to women. And we should return to that. I was like, well, you know, that was before this thing called the phone. <laughs> and there's a lot, a lot of historical, you know, analogy stuff leaves out. I mean, just, when you just think about the role the telephone has played in like, completely destroying the need for political conventions as oh, point Barone makes right, a lot, yeah. you know, um, that you, you know, you used to, Barone argues that you need to have political conventions because you couldn't risk negotiating by letter. It just took too much time. It was too easy for your position to spill out into your, you know, to expose your offer and get you into and trouble. You know, politicians don't want to, you don't want to put things in writing. Right? And you don't want to put things in right. writing, right. And so you, a convention, you do face-to-face negotiations, you know, away from prying eyes and all the rest. And the telephone made it possible to do, in effect, face-to-face negotiations at a distance. And that killed the, one of the main requirements for the, the political convention. It's almost any analogy to the past that doesn't take into account how technology has fundamentally changed society kind of blows up in your face. Right. 
right? And, and, and you know, the, this is a cliche. You can't go backwards, right? You can't recreate a society that existed in the past. It's, you know, you can learn from it. You can take things from the past. But, you know, there's, especially as time goes by, you know, there's, it's funny, both political sides want to recreate the 1950s, right? The left wants to do the economics of the 1950s, right? 90% right. tax rates, um, you know, strong unionization. And then, you know, you tell them that's before globalization. The entire global market economy is flat. It's on its back. Um, you can do all that when that happens. And the right wants to return to kind of, you know, Victorian, neo-Victorianism, you know, in, in the social spectrum. And, and you can't, the, you know, there's something called the sexual revolution that happened between them, which, you know, opened up. And the internet. And the internet. <laughs> I, mean, I, I like talking about technologies. Think about the technology of the automobile, what that did right. to male-female relationships. I mean, you, you look at 1920s, people cr attacking the automobile because now a young man and a young woman can sit together alone, shielded from others, and you know what a, what this did to courtship and how that yeah. changed that. You know, we don't. I, I like talking to my students about necking. Talk about nineteen twenties. Mm -hmm. What is that? What are they talking about <laughs> necking? Why are they so upset about necking? Um, you know, they don't. But yeah, but this was huge in the twenties, and the automobile was scandalous for some people. Yeah, well, so like um, Wattenberg, my old boss, uh, who you knew quite well. Yep. Actually, I did worked, some work for him. I worked for him yeah. as well. Yeah, we all, we all yeah, have stories. Uh, you have many more stories than I do, but I. Yeah, um, but uh, that, did I trigger you? A little bit, I gotta say, you know, because I'm always so tempted to tell stories that I don't know how to do with the right respect. So I will leave it for another time. But uh, um, Ben, who was a very good self-taught demographer, you know, the things that Ben were, was good at, he was really good at, and he really understood the population stuff. And he used to tell me how he would go back and look at the out of wed the shotgun marriage rates in the twenties as the prevalence of cars expanded, and it was like they were rolling brothels. Yep. You know, or brothels is probably unfair, but no, that's that, that's um, why I think some people called them that at the time. I think that's yeah. what they were referred to by some, you know, kind of more traditional people who were concerned about this. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I think this was in the annals of due diligence for caveats. One of the greatest setups for the question I, I started this conversation to ask you is, given what we have said about how analogies are flawed, what era do you think is the best analogy to the moment that we're in? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, if you go back to like the 1420s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got, no, I, I, I don't. You know, I, I don't think there is an analogy. I mean, we are living in very, I mean, I, t you know, I tell my students this, uh, it's, this is also a cliche, but I told them, I said, listen, you're living in history. This is history, you know, write it down. Talk, you know, write down a journal. This is, people are going to ask you what it was like because it's not like anything that occurred before. I, I've been thinking about, I mean, historians try to think in big stretches, right? And mm -hmm. Think about from 2001 to the present, the last 20 years, what American history has been like. You know, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, 2008-2009, financial crisis. Uh, Iraq war. The Iraq, yeah, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan, the war on terror. I was kind of putting that under 9-11, you know, all yeah, that okay, stuff, yeah. right? And then, you know, the the pandemic, uh, the Black Lives Matters, the protests, which really begin under Obama, right? 
right? This what's going right. on now is is kind of a continuation of what started around 2014, um, and the Antifa stuff. You know, those protests, the Occupy Wall Street protests, which we've kind of forgotten about. I, I get the sense that they've kind of merged in with Antifa. That's become um, these have been 20 very interesting years, which don't really have, uh, I think, an analogy. Um, I mean, great, the Civil War was a tremendously disruptive thing and thing in American history, but that's not analogous to today. Um, yeah. And the 60s, you know, we, we talk about the 60s, but really this, most of the 60s were a pretty, um, pretty calm time in American history. When we talk about the 60s, we're really talking about like 1967 down into the 70s a little bit. Yeah, I mean, often when we're talking about the 60s, we're really talking about the 70s. Yeah, we're talking about the 70s. I mean, you know, who was the biggest movie star of the 1960s? It's Doris Day, right? Go watch, yeah. you know, watch those Doris Day movies. And that's, it's, I've been watching some of them. There's a you watch it and there's a lot of sort of sexual innuendos in there, but they're all mm -hmm. done under that kind of broader wholesomeness and the broader kind of Hollywood uh, type. But if you, if you go from the Doris Day movies just six years later to Easy Rider <laughs> and yeah, what comes yeah. after, right? I mean, that's a huge, in just six years, that is a huge leap. Uh, so no, I, Particularly I, I when, don't know. I, I don't, I can't think of any analogy to today. Yeah. I mean, I, we talked about the, the, the movies of the seventies, on the last time you were on. Um, but one of the things I always think about is like, you know, we date these movies from when they're released, but they're capturing a moment, but two years back and sort of like COVID-19 data, right? I mean, the, when the movie comes out, that's the end of the process, but the movie was conceived of sometimes two, three, four, even five years before it's actually filmed, you know, written, filmed, you know, made and all the rest. And so the snapshot of the society that it's giving you isn't necessarily, when it comes out in 76, isn't necessarily of 76. It's really of like 74, 73. Books, books are the same way, um, but, right? Books yeah. are the same way. I know you were talking about The Power Broker on another another podcast, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. published in 74. And there's a tendency to say, ah, you know, it's published during, it's you know, Watergate. But you know, he's been right. working on this for like eight years before. And, you know, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a book about the 60s, late 60s and early 70s. Um, all right. So switching gears, um, a little bit, you were talking, we were talking in the green room as it were in the locker room, um, about some of the craziness that's going on, 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 uh, your campus bureaucratically, which we don't need to get into the details on, but, um, you know, it's funny you're this week, you're the second tenured professor in a row that I've talked to. You're from... Uh, crazy liberal Massachusetts and, and Jack Pitney was from crazy liberal Southern California and you're both conservatives. Um, Massachusetts is a lot less liberal than one would think, right? We've had Republican mayors for the last, for all but eight of the last 30 years. Massachusetts mayors or governors? Governors. governors yeah, I'm sorry. Governors. You said mayors. Yeah, governors yeah. of yeah. states. Uh, you know, we have a, we have a flat tax, a flat income tax of 5.3% uh, in Massachusetts. It's, it's, it's not a classic blue state, and it doesn't have the same problems that New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, California, Illinois have. We're actually fiscally, I mean, I think prior to the pandemic, we actually had a budget surplus. Um, mm -hmm. It's Massachusetts is actually doing pretty well. It's, it's not a blue, it's not, even though it, it, it's voted, you know, Democratic nationally, it's, it's an odd state. Um, they're certainly very left wing, you know wing of the democratic party the the the, the liz warren the cambridge wing and mm -hmm. that's that's definitely growing but um yeah it's not quite as it's not quite it's not california um although 
I think they're we're now down to like four Republicans in the state Senate. They just lost two special elections. I think you know we're, we're heading down to probably zero at some point um, in the direction. Well, also just at the at the the federal level, I think there are there any Republicans in New England left in the House or Senate? I mean, it's like a very small no, number. I mean, there's but, some. But, but there's- uh, no, because New Hampshire had some, and I think in the last election, I think in 2018, um, they lost whoever. Uh, but New Hampshire has had a couple. Massachusetts had two congressmen in the 90s, two Republican congressmen in the 90s. Um, that was sort of an interesting time. Uh, but no, I don't think there's any in New England. Uh, the, the, in Maine, in one of those districts, there was a guy who should have won um, but because they're doing what's that balloting, that um, um, second choice balloting, yeah. he ended up losing. He, he won the initial vote, but with under 50 percent, then they went to the second choice and he ended up losing. Um, so but um, so I mean, uh, but in, so I wrote a comment about this recently. You read that New York magazine interview with the professor from NYU t- predicting basically got a gamma room for higher education. That is just, yeah, you, this they, huge we, we are. So, you know, there were, pro- we talked about this a little bit before there were serious problems in higher ed for this. Well, um, Glenn Reynolds had been talking for years about the bu- the higher education bubble. I don't think mm-hmm. bubble is quite the right word, but there were serious problems. Lots of p- private colleges, small private colleges were starting to go under. Uh, before all this, you know, if you if you don't have an endowment above a certain level, you're going to be in trouble uh, because you are heavily reliant on tuition. But in order mm-hmm. to attract students, you have to sort of discount tuition and heavily discount it. Um, the other thing that's happening that I think people don't realize demographically, the number of college age students is declining. Um, so we, I, I live just down the street from a state university here and we meet with the president as neighbors like once or twice a year and my neighbors are sometimes a little crazy they think the college is going to buy up their house and take over the entire neighborhood and the president just <laughs> laughed he's, he's a good guy he, he just laughed and he said no 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 in fact we're budgeting for two percent declines in enrollment from here on out and if it's two percent we're going to be okay if it's any more it's a problem uh, maine has a huge problem there just are not enough kids in maine um, so mm-hmm. you have the University of Maine is advertising in Massachusetts and Connecticut saying that University of Maine is cheap out of state is cheaper than UMass or UConn in state. Uh, so there are all these things that are going on and, and it's been papered over because of this heavy reliance on international students. So what's what's been saving us is international students. The problem is there is a cost to international students. Um, one cost is you have to actually hire someone, a company to go and recruit those students. And they take money. And then once the students come, many of them need preparation and need help. And then there's the espionage. Yeah. Which is another cost. So we had just literally (laughs) the floor below my office, we had the Confucius Institute, which to Uh the university's credit, I think about a year ago, it closed down. Uh, And if I'm, I I might be wrong on this, but I think one of the people associated with it is under investigation now, right? These Confucius Institutes. Um, Yeah, it's a problem. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was just making a joke because it's, you know, it it is an issue. It is an issue. I mean, it's issue with, it started with an issue of like uh, Arab money. You know, the Arabs put a lot of money. All of a sudden you had all these universities opening campuses in Qatar. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, a friend of mine was offered a year to teach there. And they were offered like doubling his salary with no taxes. Um, But there's a price to pay for this. And um, so, yeah, and the China stuff we're seeing 
not in our, our college, but we're seeing people being arrested because they're applying for these federal grants and then lying about the fact that they're also you know, accepting money from the Chinese government. Yeah. So, yeah, so, um, so higher ed is, is huge problems before this. And now the problem is all of these universities need to open in the fall because if they don't open in the fall, they're not going to get enrollments, especially the residential colleges. Because think about mm -hmm. it, you're an, I mean, you know, you have a daughter, you want to go and have that residential college experience. If they're going to go online, first, your parents are not going to want to pay for you to do online. And you certainly not full, not price. full price. And you're not going to, you're going to miss that. So why not take a gap year? You have a lot of college, right. high school seniors now talking about gap years. You know, yeah. let me take a semester or a year off and then go back. And the universities can't. Uh, I'll tell you this story. This is, this is the one thing that really shocked me. Johns Hopkins, which I think we can all agree is a very elite and very well-funded university. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of months ago, after the pandemic, announced it was going to stop uh, for one year, I think, stop contributing to the faculty, their faculty's retirement uh, counts. Really? Yes. And for Johns Hopkins to do that, and I think there are some other schools that have been following. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to go into all the details, but a lot of elite schools are having serious problems and then having to explain why they can't go into their endowments, which is an interesting argument to follow, right? You know, you have these yeah. you know, billion dollars. I mean, Johns Hopkins problem, apparently, there's a really good article in the Chronicle by a guy named Francois Furstenberg, who it, you might remember the, fir the name Furstenberg. His dad was a famous sociologist, Frank Furstenberg, mm -hmm. who wrote a lot about family and, and, and um, and it was good. And, it and amazingly, his mom was Diane. <laughs> you know, it's just, what a, yeah, what a not sure about that. Uh, <laughs> but he wrote, he teaches at Johns Hopkins and he was writing about this. Um, you know, Harvard, Harvard did it in, in the way that only Harvard could do it. The, their first reaction to the pandemic and the, the fiscal issues was that they laid off all of their subcontracted cafeteria workers which is classic right. Harvard, right? You, you know, you wonder why Bernie Sanders is so popular and why so many young people think socialism is great. It's because they see stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's crappy. There's no other way to get around that. Um, but a lot of schools, it's not capitalism though. I just want to make yeah, yeah, clear no, that no, when no, Harvard does no, that, it's not, not at all, not at all, but they, but, but again, young people and, and see that yeah. and they assume that that's what, you know, wealthy institutions do. Um, but yeah, so there, there's a problem. Schools have to come back. In the Boston area, already a few of the, the, the big schools have announced they're coming back in the fall um, because economically they have to do it. Um, there's also, you know, we're talking about tenure. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who teaches in the Midwest. Let me just put it that way, private school Midwest. He told me, he says, tenured faculty are going to lose their jobs. They're going to be laid, permanently let go. Um, there's no other way to do it. They're going to they're going to reduce majors. They're going to reduce programs, and and tenured faculty are going to lose their positions. And these people will never get another job. You know, mm -hmm. we had uh, you know we had some very small school college closings around here, and that's what I thought about. You know, they, these the faculty who've been teaching at these small private colleges, that's it. They're done. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, you know, New York State they they passed some thing where if you get certain grades in state and you go to a state school, it's tuition free or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And there are a bunch of, you know, basically community colleges, four-year schools that give associate, you know, like good schools that, you know, teach stuff about food service and that kind of thing. There's one up in the Adirondacks that I know about. And they're devastated by this because if you're offering free that even a very low tuition school, that's still a private school, it can't compete with free, you know? Um, so, and that was all long before yep. the pandemic. 
But I, the, the really important question I want to ask is, let's just say hypothetically you had a 17-year-old daughter who just finished her junior year in Spain. It was cut a little short by the pandemic. She goes to a pretty good private school in the greater D.C. area, and she's thinking about colleges next year and AP tests, and she's freaking out. She's got her AP Spanish test today. Again, all hypothetical. Um what would be your guidance? Would you say plan on going to school in 2021 or plan on doing a gap year? What, you know, what, 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 what would you 20, say? Oh, well, 2021, I think, yeah, I think you're, yeah, I think you should plan to, to go in college. And, and I, I think. But wouldn't, wouldn't the problem be all the people who took gap years and or took a year off? There's going to be this huge spike in new applications for these schools. Yep. Well, yeah, what's going to happen? People who, def- who who get admitted and defer for a year, right? So I think it'll right. probably be harder to, yeah, I think admissions uh, to these schools getting in is going to be harder. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, 2021, who knows what's going to happen? 2021, I don't know. I mean, we're going to have another pandemic over the, uh, we're going to have another spike in the winter and everybody's going to go online again. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the more interesting is where are you going to send her? Like what, you know, what, yeah. you know, what I, I've had friends, friends that, you know, you know, who were in the similar situation and, um, they found schools, very good schools, but, uh, I don't know would I send my kid to where I went to college. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure these days. I don't think it's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't think it's an environment that's conducive to, you know, to the liberal arts and to, to learning these days. It's heavily politicized, you know, you know, the whole story. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah. But there's still places out there that I think uh, do a good job, and you have to be. The thing is, you have to be smart. We have a couple of friends who you know, pick their, sit with their their kids and pick out classes. <laughs> now, there's only so far you can take that with an 18 or 19 year old. But yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, oh, I know this professor, you know, or, or, or that, or you know, kind of say, oh, try to avoid this. But you do, you have to be a, a, you have to be a good consumer if you're going to colleges and figure out what are the courses that are going to be worthwhile and what are the professors to avoid and the courses to avoid. So here, all right, so I, I want to get off of this in a second, but, um, you know, I had Brian Kaplan on a couple of years ago. Oh, and yeah. um, when I was writing about the higher education thing, I went back and revisited some of that. And, you know, and he makes, he has this very sort of interesting way of, framing the question, you know, it was like, would you rather have the entire benefit of a full spectrum Princeton education, but no degree? Or would you ha- rather have the degree, but not the education? And his, part of the reason he brings this up is he says, you know, look, if, if you were stuck on a deserted island, left alone to your own devices, you would much rather have the education from a survival training school than the certificate of completion, right? But if you're applying for a job someplace, you might want the certificate of completion and not necessarily the training, depending on what the job is. That's even more true for something like higher education is that the sheepskin effect of just the credentialing of having the thing, uh, the, the, the degree from Princeton is more valuable than the education is. And he's got a lot of data to demonstrate this. He's, oh, you, you, know, know, you don't even need the data. I mean, it's ob- Yeah, that, that's clear. And that's yeah. why upper middle class parents continue to send their kids to schools, even with everything that's going around, because they know the value of a Yale degree, a Princeton degree, a Harvard degree is, is huge. Um, I think the question is, what do you want your, what do you want your child to get out of college? Right. If the goal right. is to, you know, have that degree to as an entree into elite society and, and well-paying jobs and the, you know, in the technology information world, then great. Um, but are or do you want an education which is sort of the traditional, almost um, idealistic model of a liberal arts humanities education? 
That's that's the question. So there are actually three benefits you get from, or at least three you get from going to a, an elite school, right? There's the credential, yep. that's one. There's the education, that's another. And then the third is the social connections that you make, right? And um, uh, putting the value of the degree aside, or the value of the education aside for a second, you hopeless romantic you. Um, (laughs) um, uh, Which do you think at these elite schools is more valuable, the connections or the credentializing effect? Yeah, I, I, so I went to one of these schools where people talked about connections as strong alumni, and I, I'm not sure I ever got how much I got from that. I think the degree itself is important. I mean, the problem with college degrees now is, you know, a Yale degree or Harvard degree will always be worth what it is. But in the past, it used to be any sort of college degree. But now, you know, just having a college degree isn't worth it. So you have people going now and getting a master's degree. Because mm-hmm. the value of a co- just generic college degree has been lowered, um, yeah, the connections. I mean, yeah, I mean there are some schools, you know, that that have this, and I think it's always up to the student, right? The connections are what you make, um, and I'm sure if you go to a state school somewhere in the Midwest, um, you can make connections that will allow you to be successful in that state or that region, right? It's, it's all right. all kind of depends. Uh, I think the diploma itself is is probably the the one thing that's that's. I mean. Weirdly, the the area, the, the the disciplines that the connections actually may be the most valuable are like in computer engineering right now, because that gets you in touch with some dude doing a startup in in Silicon Valley. Like if you know somebody from your French poetry class, uh, it's not like your ticket to the big bucks. All right, so um, we were going to have you back on a couple of weeks ago because the LA Times had asked me specifically to write about something and. Um, it was sort of a peeve of mine, and it turned out it's a bigger peeve of yours. I figured we should talk about it for a second. Is this notion? It, remember when Bob Barr said, "Look, you know," and it was it was blown out of context because he said other important things first. And I don't really care about the Barr controversy at this part because we have new Barr controversies now, and they're more interesting anyway. But um, uh, he said, you know, he was asked, "How will history look at what you're doing?" And he says, "Well, history is written by the victors or the winners." Um, what's your take on that? Yes. Yeah, on the proposition, not the bar. It's, it's one of those. It's one of those things you hear. The the reason it bothers me is I hear from undergraduates all the time, right? And it's a way to kind of sound, um, you know, sound sophisticated. Um, mm-hmm. And it's oh well, yeah, history's the reason you know you don't learn about that is history is written by the winners. It also adds to a kind of cynicism. There's a, a greater and greater sense, and I think some of this is fueled by the Zin stuff of um, history is being kept from people, right? Right. How come I didn't learn that before? And they think it's because my high school teachers are color, or have kept this from me for some obscure reason. Um, and that ties into the histories written by the winners, right? That somehow people are controlling the history knowledge that you're getting. And in, in a very broad way, yes, I mean, there's a historical profession, there's historical interpretation sites and, and all that, but it doesn't work quite in that way. And, you know, we talked about there are lots of examples of history not being written by the winners. You know, we, um, if you look at, let's say, after World War I, right, one of the big problems was, you know, the Allies wrote their history, but the Germans wrote their history too. And, and that kind of mm-hmm. history had a really big impact on what happened in the 1930s and early 40s. Um, you know, the Japanese after World War II, you know, they, they're still writing their history. I mean, they, they're not refighting the war, but they have a real hard time coming to grips with some of the things they did, especially to other you know, Asian countries like China and Korea. 
Uh, so, and they lost that war, abjectly lost that war. Um, you know, today, if you look at the historical profession today, it's really so much of it is about not the quote unquote winners of history, but about people like, you know, Native Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at at histories of colonial America now, it is much more geared towards Native American perspective. If you go to Plymouth Plantation, it's not just the story of the pilgrims, it's the story of both. So, that, you know, this idea that somehow only the, maybe back in Roman times, you know, the Romans conquer some small group of Germans or, or Gauls and destroy their civilization and, you know, hear from them anymore. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, that's certainly true. There's also a sense that, especially with native peoples, that they just don't have the sources, right? You know, the, the reason the victors mm-hmm. want, you know, told the stories, the reason why European colonists told the stories is because they wrote things down. Um, and they pass it. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a survivor's bias yeah. issue, not yes, a winner's exactly. bias. Right? Exactly. That's a good way. Herodotus is remembered as one of the greatest historians of all times because his stuff sure. yep. exists. You yep. know? And that's a, that's an important thing in the historical profession, you know, what sources exist and what sources don't. Um, and that, right. that, that impacts how you teach things. And, you know, and it's not any kind of conspiracy. It's not like there was this great treasure trove of Native American sources that got burned in a bonfire 300 years ago. Um, so yeah, so I, the, the, the reason why I don't like the, the phrase is it feeds into a kind of cynicism and almost like paranoia, right. About how history gets made and how history gets told. And, you know, history is only from a certain white male perspective or history is only told by those who are at the top of society. Now, since the sixties, bottom up history has been the thing that has been the thing that's driven great deal of the American historical profession. It's bottom up. It's not top down history. Also, I mean, just listening to you, I mean, we had talked about this a while ago and, um, and we talked about the Roman thing. And I, I think the Roman thing is true. There's a, there's a great bit in, uh, Yuval Harari's book, uh, Sapiens about this, this community, this city, small city in Spain that celebrates their, um, victory so they're in the masada like resistance to the romans but you know or is like okay but it's all kitsch because you're celebrating it in a roman language you're you know it's all it's become part of roman you know the the, the layover roman culture and you know and it's been in culturally it was culturally appropriated by the romans and then eventually by their descendants right. the spaniards but the what made me think about that was like Probably the best counterexample of this is um, if you were, and I mean this with no disrespect, if you were there at the crucifixion of Jesus, you would have said, well, no one's going to remember yeah. this guy because history is written by the winners and didn't work out that and that's, way. And that's sort of, the, again, not to get too deeply into theology or, or, or Christianity, but that's the story of Christianity, right? That the man who has the has had, you know, the, the greatest impact in the last 2,000 years, so much so that we, you know, we date our years to, you know, to his birth, um, is a guy who was, uh, you know, who was crucified with some, some Roman criminals and was not seen at the time as anything but a kind of a minor rabble rouser on the margins of society. And Christianity, you know, right. the, and this is, you know, theology, it, it, it flips around what was pre-Christ, this idea that, you know, the winners dominate. Right. You know, Christ- mm-hmm. Christianity is the, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. I mean, that's hugely revolutionary in, 
It's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a big part of Nietzsche's complaint about a lot. Of well, things, and, and right? yeah, pagan, the, the, the pagans complain that the Christianity ruined Europe because it made us weak. And yeah, you, know, you still see some of that, like in Scandinavia, these, these kind of small pagan movements that are very anti-Christian. Yeah. 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 There's also, there was some of that for a while in, of all places, feminism, right? Which had this sort of imagined, talk about conspiracy theory history where the real truth is hidden to us. That turns out that the witches not only really existed, but they were healers and they were resisting Christian, you know, the imposition of Christianity. The historical debunking of that is complete. It's just, there's nothing really true to it. Um, but it's a nice story that them tell themselves because everyone wants to have these, these secret lineages that go back in time that give them more authenticity. And, and this is also that. going back to the sort of the Gnostic, Gnosticism, right? That there's this hidden secret truth, which is available to only only a few select people who are able to grasp this. And, you know, all of you others are, are kind of missing the boat. Um, again, not to get into what Gnosticism is, this, this is complicated, but I mean, not... We, we've, we've gone yeah, over to Gnosticism, broadly speaking, but it, that explains a lot about, I think, you know, where we are today and, and how people see uh, not just the past, but also what's going on today, that there's this kind of hidden, there's this hidden thing, you need the key to unlock that truth. And once you've unlocked that truth, then you, then you have it. And, and if you don't see it, the problem is you, right? You're, you're not a select, one of the select. Um, one key that one lock that is worth unlocking, it seems to me, is the value of truly exceptional underwear. And that's why I just want to put in a little plug for our friends at Tommy John. Actually, folks, you know, Tommy John isn't even advertising on this episode, which is why I didn't say they were sponsoring today's episode. But um, uh, they advertised the first one of this week. And since Father Day is coming up and uh, it's a busy time in podcast advertising, we wanted to just remind you that if you get a great deal, if you go to tommyjohn.com slash remnant, that's tommyjohn.com slash remnant, not dingo, but remnant, and um, you will have the, uh, the life-changing experience of improved underwear and so many other products. So um, we thank Tommy John for their support. All right, so... Uh, uh, on this sort of unlocking the key to the passing. So one of these things, and I recommend that um, listeners who haven't didn't listen to the early days of this podcast, I got it. I've gotten into this a couple of times with Matt Continetti and some other people on here. But one of the things that we've talked a lot about is these sort of pre-Buckley Wright and um, the and one of my abiding obsessions is to permanently. Um, uh, you know, first of all, permanently to turn Woodrow Wilson into history's greatest monster, but that's a different story. Um, uh, but to also have people stop calling uh, Father Charles Coughlin a right winger. Um, but it's so unbelievably difficult to explain to people what right wing meant in the 1930s and 20s and 10s to the extent it meant something at all. And, and then you have to explain how Richard Hofstetter made it even more complicated. Um, but there is this thing going on now where, and it's always percolated on the right, particularly in the fever swampy crowd, that, you know, the, the right took this wrong turn with Hayek or Buckley or whatever, the narrative of the Nash book, and that the real authentic conservatives were 
the you know these Mencken. I like Mencken. He's got his problems, but um, and some even crankier types um, um, on the right, quote unquote, of the old right. Um, what? How? To the extent you have to, how do you explain the old right? To your students, or how do you think of them in the context of today's uh, right, or the right of even ten oh, years? Jonah, I, we're not even at the stage of explaining the old right to my students, right? <laughs> I mean, we're just trying to get the basics of. Um, we have to teach the political spectrum. What what is right and left? What is? Um, yeah, and that's just not my students. That's I think college students in general. I mean, well, the way I see it is that, and I, I don't know if you agree or not, but the the Buckleyite, the posts. 50s and on, it's sort of a constructed movement, right? The idea that it's it's a time-specific movement. Um, and reading it into the past, you know, and, and Kirk tried to do this and others, um, it's not like you can say, oh, and then there were conservatives. If you have that mindset of what a conservative is, it's, you know, American conservatives post, you know, National Review conservatism, fusionist conservatives, the Nash, you know, George's book on, on on conservatives, and then try to read it back and try to figure out, well, who would have been those people before this? It doesn't make sense because there you mm-hmm. didn't have that division. You didn't have also an understanding of right and left, that same kind of. So, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Russell Kirk's book, you know, he's going back to Arrestus Bronson from the mid, you yeah, know, yeah, who, yeah. who's a fascinating figure does not figure into the way we think of right and left today. I mean, you also have lots of conservatives today, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, the, the founding fathers were conservative, right? There's this, this tr- long tradition of conservatism back to the founding. And that doesn't make sense either, right? Um, according to our definitions or the, the post-1950s definition of right and left. Um, you, had a, you had a sort of a strange amalgam of, of thinkers and writers prior to the 1950s and 40s. I mean, a lot of them were people who were on the more kind of libertarian side, right? You know, who were arguing. Yeah. Mencken, I, I've never been able to figure out where he sits right or left. I, I think he it depends what you're reading um, and what you're, yeah. pre- and I've, you know, I mean, Fred Siegel goes after Mencken, you know, he's, um, but, you know, Bob Tyrrell loves Mencken, right? And thinks, yeah, the, it, right. It, it depends where you're looking. To me, uh, he doesn't fit anywhere on that spectrum. Um, Coffle, I mean, he, he's a self-identified yeah. misanthrope. <laughs> so by definition, he's going to be hard and to the, categorize. The other thing is, you know, we grew up in this where you almost had to define yourself right or left, conservative or liberal. Like, yeah. And people like 80 years ago did not have that same compulsion. They did not have to say, this is where I stand on the political spectrum. You know, this is, that wasn't how they thought necessarily. Um, so, I mean, you were talking about Coughlin. I, you know, Coughlin is one of these difficult people to sort of get around because, yes, I mean, there's the late thir- you know, late 1930s, early 40s Coughlin, which is really, really problematic. Um, but he starts off as a New Deal supporter, right? He's uh, mm-hmm. and he's arguing from this idea of cap, and I believe anti-Klan. Yeah, while, well, because right? the Klan, but this is, but the Klan was also anti-Catholic right. and and was not exactly considered right-wing into his. No, I mean, there's there there's sort of conservative elements to the Klan in the sense that they're arguing they're actually sort of neo-Victorians in a lot of ways, uh, right? But no, the the, the big villains. There's, there's three different clans throughout history. You know, there's the post-Civil War one, which is basically the Confederates, the defeated Confederates terrorizing blacks. Uh, there's the one we're familiar with, the the, the post 1950s 60s Klan, which is very much anti-black. But the 1920s Klan, which in some ways was the most popular, the largest, was deeply, largely anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. It was reacting to the, the right. great wave of immigration. And liked prohibition yep. and was essentially created by the movie Birth of a Nation. 
it was kind of like, I mean, like, ignited. There was also an, an aspect to it. It's an interesting history of a kind of, a, I don't say a Ponzi scheme, but they were, they were, they were gaining memberships, right? And, and your job was to sort of get more members and get membership dues and create more. There was a, and people were making money. The, the people behind this were making money off of that. So yeah, so Catholics were deeply, deeply anti-KKK because, you know, the prime enemy of the KKK were Catholics. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. so Coughlin was, was that, I mean, he was in this kind of social Catholic social justice tradition and, you know, how much you want to go into this and, and, and talk about it because it's, it's interesting because it does not fall right or left. Um, you know, the John, John Father Ryan is one of the, the, the big promoters of this and he, he makes a lot of connections with the progressive era, right? Richard Ely and these others. Right. I mean, Ryan, we should tell people, was a huge supporter of the New Deal. I think he was called Father New Deal or something like that. Reverend New Dealer, I think, was the, yeah. Yeah. And he was like the, he was the establishment elite Catholic spokesman for New Deal liberalism. And one of my gripes, and I'll let you run free, because you're doing a book on on Fulton Sheen, right? No, on Cardinal Spellman. Uh, I have have a lot of stuff on Sheen, too, yes. Yeah, um, I apologize for that. But um, the... One of my great complaints, and some of this I got from uh, your the, your late friend, you know, Alan Brinkley, uh, is that Ryan would, when when Father Coughlin, who, if listeners don't know, is the archetypal is considered the archetypal right wing radio guy. If you go, you'll find dozens of pieces comparing Rush Limbaugh to him as if they're of the same cloth and all the rest, and. I am not a defender of Rush Limbaugh's these days, but this goes back 15, 20 years, um, who's an anti-Semitic figure. Um, and in the beginning, he was wildly pro-New Deal, called it Christ Steel, and campaigned for Roosevelt in 32, saying Roosevelt a ruin. And back then, Ryan, who was sort of, but he was still considered a little demagogish, little sort of coarse, um, but Ryan would defend him against critics, saying, look, he's on the side of the angels. And then the only thing that changed that was when he started complaining about the New Deal being too conservative and not left-wing enough in its economic program, was he all of a sudden considered this right, right-wing right figure of hate. And this was one of the huge things I had to grapple with for years, was that there are all of these figures who are considered by serious historians at one point or another right-wingers. And you would I would read up on them and read up on them, and I couldn't figure out why are they called right-wingers? And it turns out in the 30s, if you were anti-FDR, it didn't matter whether you were attacking him from the left or the right. You just got called a right-winger. And at one point, I want to, and I'll let you answer however you want on all of this stuff. But one of the things that I found was, a, and I, I, I'm a fan of Ron Radosh's. I like Ron's I stuff. He's, 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 a, he's a decent he's a guy. guy. He's a, um, but back, he used to be a pretty serious radical, right? And at one point in his youth, he wrote a book called Prophets on the Right. And I'm reading the subtitle of it. It's Prophets on the Right, Conservative Critics of American Globalization. And it's Senator Robert Taft, J.T. Flynn, Oswald Garrison Villard, Lawrence Dennis, and Charles Beard. And if memory serves, he also includes in there John Dewey, but I could be wrong about that. Now, Charles Beard, I was taught in my intro to poli-sci class, as the sort of definitive yeah. left-wing critic of American, you know, of American founding, right? And uh, Lawrence Dennis is a really complicated character. Um, and J.T. Flynn, 
was a columnist for the New Republic who wrote other, among other things, he was also the found, one of the founders of America First. He ran the New York chapter of it. And Flynn um, wrote this column for the New Republic called Other People's Money. And I went back and I read like dozens of them. And it was all left-wing stuff. And Buckley, when Buckley starts National Review, won't publish Flynn because he considers him a crackpot or whatever. That's really hard onion for me to peel and figure out to this day why some of this stuff gets called right-wing versus left-wing. So anyway, take it anywhere you want. Well, I mean, part of it, you talked about Hofstetter before. You know, Hofstetter poisons the well a bit because he goes back to the populists. And to him, the populists are these right-wing, you know, these kind of right-wing reactionaries. And I think now we see them, if you actually look at what the populists were saying, it was very anti-capitalist, mm-hmm. right? Um there's also just the sense that you know anyone you don't like historically is a right winger. It, it, it changed over time. For a while, it was neocon. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't matter who you were. You know, you were a neocon. That 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 puts you you know on, on the fringes. Now um, it's a little bit neoliberal. Neoliberal, same, same yes, yeah, yeah. And, and it's a much bigger pot of people who are neoliberals. I um, <laughs> I was side the tangent here. I was on a panel a few years ago, and um, what's her name? Betsy Gottbaum. You mm-hmm. Betsy was in New York political figure. She was on the panel and someone kept talking about neoliberalism. And after the panel, Betsy turns to me and says, what the hell is neoliberalism? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when she do liberal, she's a liberal, liberal Democrat. No idea what this is. Um, the other thing you forgot about Father Coughlin and the others is the isolationist thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. once once they start to really, I mean, you know, FDR isn't happy in '36. He he thinks it long, and um, you know, these others are gonna uh, are gonna impact his reelection, but it's the preparation, it's the the international stuff that really gets them gets them going and gets these people kind of tagged as right wingers. But Coughlin is is arguing from a very Catholic tradition, and Ryan and Catholic are, I mean, Ryan and Coughlin are on the same uh, same page that. You know, the Catholic Church, you have to go back to the French Revolution, right? It, it was the most impactful thing for the church in, in modern history, dealing with the effects of the French Revolution and how it looked at modernism and modern society. And one of the things that, you know, in Catholic doctrine is in the 19th century or 20th century is um, criticisms of individualism, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they saw that capitalism was an element of that, radical individualism. So this is also the era of kind of Thomistic, uh, when Thomism becomes the dominant ideology, the dominant idea in the Catholic Church. So they're using natural law to argue for a more kind of, I don't know, holistic, organic mm-hmm. view of community and society, as opposed to this you know, atomistic view of society of everyone's, you know, an atomistic individual. So when... Ryan looks at in the progressive, he starts in the progressive era when he looks at these things. Sure, he says minimum wage, uh, child labor laws, trade unions. And that was a thing the church had a hard time getting around. At first, it kind of condemns the Knights of Labor. It sees, mm-hmm. sees it as kind of akin to the Masons, like a secret society. But you know, Leo XIII publishes Rerum Novarum, 1891, I think, 90s, and says, okay, unions are okay. And he starts to set out this Catholic theory, the social theory, um, which is trying to, 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 to bridge, to kind of walk through the middle between radical free market, you know, laissez-faire and socialism and communism, right? So, you know, the church says pro- private property is good. It's okay. It's not good from an individualist perspective. It's good from a societal perspective. It's good for families. It's good for the church as well. Remember the church is a big landowner. So of course, um, and they, they still have, um, 
So the um, so that's what Ryan and Coughlin are working from. It's not anti-capitalist per se, um, but it's it's very much anti-socialist, anti-Marxist. Uh, but they are, and it's tied in as well, not just economically but socially. So in addition to arguing this, you know, Ryan is arguing against contraception. Right, contraception is a great evil. Why? It's part of this individualistic uh, philosophy, and it's going to harm the family. Is their argument? Um, you know, censorship of movies. Right, the whole legion of decency, all of that comes out of this ca- Catholics. So, you know, non-Catholic progressives—that's where they get off the boat, and they say, "Well, this this stuff is kind of you know we we're, we don't buy that." Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they're all arguing. They're arguing from all of this from a Thomistic natural law position. Um, they're also no, that's, right. that's actually really helpful. I mean, I, I know a lot of the social justice Rerum Novarum stuff, uh, uh, in part because that's where corporatism, the, the, yeah. the doctrines of corporatism come right. from, is and, and blithering idiots like uh, uh, um, Robert Kennedy Jr. think corporatism means rule by GE. <laughs> Um, I mean, he said, he said so a thousand times that like, corporate means ruled by we, corporations, and that's not what it meant. Right? We could do a whole thing on Robert Kennedy Jr. <laughs> um, uh, and but uh, so I know some of that stuff. But your point about it being part of this sort of a social, not great awakening, but a sort of a social, moral cultural, you know, revival and all that stuff, I think is 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 well taken. But just to push back a little bit, the the whatever what was it, the National Union for Social Justice, that yeah. was the thing. It, there's a lot of explicitly anti-capitalist language in their platforms and stuff when he breaks with Roosevelt. I mean, it's not, it's no longer like private property is great. It's, it, it, it's way to the left of the stuff that you're ascribing to Ryan. Yeah. I mean, it's also the height of the, you know, the great depression, right? So it's, and the, the, you know, the Catholic response to capitalism a lot of it comes out of the fact that many of the industrial workers are capitalists. Or, sorry, many of the industrial <laughs> workers are Catholics. Yeah. Right. So it's 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 a way. Uh, you know, so they're not they're arguing from natural law, but they're also arguing because their parishioners, their people, are people who are impacted by this. They're working in the factories, and it's a response to this as well. So yeah. So it's not a surprise that in the 1930s this is going to take on an, an extra edge to it. I don't think Ryan goes that. I don't know. No, he Ryan, doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. I don't think Ryan goes that far. Right. I think. No, no, he, he he truly breaks with with. Yeah. I mean, he stays loyal to Roosevelt, is my recollection of yeah. it. Um, and when Coughlin goes nuts, all of the, this is my problem: is that the anti-Semitism and that kind of stuff was fine when he was on the same page with all these other things, and then it became damning. But he only when he and Brinkley goes through this. The anti-Semitism doesn't come into later 1930s. I mean, really overtly. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It, it doesn't become pronounced part of his identity until later. But right. there were examples of it. Well, but it's Prior. also it's also Catholicism in the 1930s, which yeah. you know they're they're still talking about perfidious Jews in the in daily mass and in, in Sunday mass. Um, this is pre-Vatican II, so there's that problematic aspect of it. Um, so, I saw yeah, perfidious so, Jews open for uh, uh, passionate mackerel snappers <laughs> in '79. Anyway, go on. No, no. So I think that's he he doesn't fit into this right and left. I mean, if you see the Catholic Church as this reactionary right-wing organization, then you're going to see Coughlin as, as, a, as a right-winger. Um, if you see him as a you know, proto-socialist from his you know, radical economic, then you're going to see him as a left-winger. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't, you know, he, he, he's not trying to fit into one, um, one ideology or another. Uh, and part of it is just this you know, dichotomy within the Catholic Church, where it's, um, it's not 
anti-capitalist, but it's, it's, it's sort of maybe one and a half cheers for capitalism, right? You know, the church, um, it's not till Michael Novak, you know, his book later, which, you know, where he comes out even more forcefully. And, and that's why even today, you know, Novak's book, people hate Michael Novak yeah, uh, on the yeah. liberal Catholic side. First of all, because he used to be one of them. I, I think a lot of people don't understand how important Michael Novak was in the sixties to liberal Catholicism. He was like one of the top liberal Catholic writers and thinkers in the country. Yeah. Uh, and then 15 years later, he's writing a book in defense of democratic capitalism um, and working at AEI. Uh, and he had the office next to me. Yeah. He was. And he, uh, had, he had the great, his secretary had the greatest, uh, and the, she was a secretary back then. I'm not trying to be sexist or whatever, but she was like one of these classic, one of the last super competent, crazy, um, you know, just omni capable people who called themselves a secretary. That I think I remember this. Yeah, I think I remember Kathy Love. And I just always thought that was great that this Catholic theologian has a secretary named Kathy Love, who's a wonderful lady. But yeah. Um, um, but yeah, no, so Catholics are, you know, I mean, Fulton Sheen is, you know, where do you put Fulton Sheen? You know, is Fulton Sheen a conservative? He's anti-communist. Um, but his his views, and, and most Catholics are kind of support, they support the New Deal. I mean, the Catholic mm-hmm. support for the New Deal is, is some of the most central support for it. Um, but the other thing is that the U.S. doesn't have a Catholic political party. They, we don't have Catholic trade unions. In mm-hmm. um, there's one attempt in the 40s and 50s, the ACTU, the American Catholic Trade Union Association, which had a little moment there. But unlike Europe, which did have some of this, yeah. um, uh, but what ends up happening, I think, in the 50s is a lot of Catholics, as they begin to move into the middle class, they begin to take shed some of that social justice stuff um, and take on more the appearance of their middle class Protestant neighbors and their views of economics and capitalism. So how much, and, and we're running along, we're going to wrap up soon, but just it, it just occurs to me, one of my complaints, and I'm not alone, and it's not original to me, um, of the the new post-liberal Catholic integralist first things stuff, all of that, whatever, you know, is how much of it seems to have completely forgotten what Brent Bozell uh, Sr., or the, I, I messed this up recently because he's actually the second or the third, whatever it's, it is. Yeah. The, the, Tri- one the who, triumph, triumph. Of the triumph, triumph, right? So the 1970s, early, late 60s, early 70s, there was this huge rift on the right between National Review and some hardcore Catholics. And all of these arguments were made back then. And very few people on and the, the new First Things crowd ever really wants to acknowledge that this happened, that they lost, that it was, you know, Kind of a mess. I mean, even though, you know, Bozell made some fantastic arguments when you, his critique of fusionism is still the best critique that I've ever read. Um, But so if there's very little connective tissue between this crowd and those guys, how much connective tissue is there between, say, these guys and Ryan or Coughlin? I'm not accusing anybody of anti-Semitism, you know, but like, is it, or is it just they've gone back to the original source material and said, this is still relevant? I, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend to know their inner thinkings, but I think part of it is an idea that, you know, to be Catholic, uh, you can't, it doesn't mean that you're going to support corporations, right? That, or you're mm-hmm. going to support, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to support libertarian, laissez-faire 
capitalism. It's an attempt to kind of find a way that addresses some of the social needs. And you know, let's be honest, there are, I think everyone would agree there's social needs in the country now. And even before the pandemic, there are lots of social problems that need to be addressed in one way or another. Um, and there's also a growing sense on the right, not just first things, that kind of the old nostrums, the old economic nostrums on the right just weren't working completely. Um, right. It doesn't make one an anti-capitalist. I don't. I think still think liberal democratic capitalism is is the thing. You know, is the the best of the best of the worst or the worst of the bad, whatever uh, you want to say. But trying to find another way um, to address these social social needs. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm a first things reader. I like first things. There's a lot more to first things than just that. Sure. Um, sure, and there's a lot of, you know, I have a, I have a good friend who I'm not going to, he, he loves first things. He's a, he's a convert. Um, but he doesn't like the, the, the back of the book, the Rusty Reno stuff. And he'll occasionally <laughs> like, he'll text me and goes, you know, I, I like everything. And then I get to this sentence and I'm just like, no, I can't buy that, you know? Um, so yeah, so that, that's, you know, I wouldn't, but there is a broader sense of, trying to figure out what a political right looks like that's still defending liberal democratic capitalism but isn't libertarian right that 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 is able to kind of address some needs and address not just the social needs but also the political needs right mm -hmm. I, I think the market the political market for you know paul ryan republicanism was another and this isn't i mean i i generally like paul ryan it's it's not really there um politically Right? I, I don't cutting social security and all these things. There's a neck. There's a, a very good argument from a fiscal standpoint, but from a political standpoint, I, d I don't know. And there's got to be a way to kind of work around that. You know, Ayn Rand and Catholicism don't go together. That was always the problem with Paul Ryan, right? Fact check, true. Yeah, they, they they literally don't go together. They you know, yeah. Buckley. That's that was one of the reasons for the fight. You, you really can. I think that's the argument you'll see on liberal Catholic when you read America or Commonweal is they'll say you know you cannot be a Catholic and be a you know a complete libertarian, one hundred percent supporter of of everything that's capitalist. Um, and I think that's where it comes from. I mean, I'm I'm sort of I'm by no way an integralist. I, I think the important thing the the, the person who who I think has kind of been forgotten. I mean, he's is John Courtney Murray, right? Mm -hmm. You know, which mm -hmm. he's a guy who takes this Thomism and and connects it to a kind of post World War II patriotic American capitalism, and he actually makes the argument that the founding is a deeply Catholic event, right? It enshrines yeah. you know Catholic natural law. Now, there's some you know there's some problems with that, but you know that that is where that's sort of what we lost. Um, it, yeah, I was recently touting his essay, A Return to Tribalism, which I just think is great. I haven't, that um, I haven't read. I'm going to have to take, I'll take a look at that. I'll send you a link to it. Um, but yeah, no, he has he, this great he, line in he, there where he's, go he, ahead. He's also an interesting guy because he's dropping acid with, you know, Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce in the early 60s. As um, one does. I mean, I've read these, I read these letters and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, you know, you can't, you know, and the doctor says that really, you know, you should be taking 30 milligrams and not 60 milligrams. And, you know, this will help you think about the problems in your past. Um, it's an interesting character in that sense. He's another person that people mischaracterize as either a, a left or right or Republican or Democrat. I mean, yeah. My view is, you know, spelled, most of these guys are kind of Eisenhower Republican types, right? They, yeah. they, which is not free market, right? You know, Eisenhower Republicans, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's sort of made, made its accommodation with New Deal, with the New Deal. Um, it's kind of a- Institutionalists, what? right? Institutionalists. Yeah, exactly. And you, you can be a liberal institutionalist or a conservative institutionalist, but- 
if, if you're an institutionalist, you actually think the institutions right. have merit and a mission and all that. And that's the center. The yeah, I mean, that's the center of my book. I mean, that's that's what Spellman is. I mean, he's classic institutionalist, right? He's he's got he's got his hand in every pot I mean, with every corporate executive. <laughs> you know, they're they're bringing in tons of money, um, and you know, and they they generally see that America is a good, a great and good place. That's and it's a place that Catholicism was able to thrive. Uh, and in the fifties, you could see that, right? There was the there's always been a gap between being an American and being a Catholic. That's always existed, but it's sometimes it's wide, sometimes it's narrow. The narrowest point I think for that was 1945 to 1963. That's mm-hmm. sort of the narrowest part. Now we're in a position where it's gotten much wider. Yeah. The only place I want to push back on all that, and I think it's actually pretty helpful. Push back, you know, this, that's such a that's such academic language. I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I, want inter- is, I want to interrogate your that, that statement of yours. <laughs> um, uh, there is something just, and it may it may just simply be a reflection of where my head is at these days. But there is something weird to me. I'm I'm, I'm more and more about people staying in their lanes, and um, you know, and one of the, as I said many times here. One of the, the big problems I think that the conservative movement has is that too many people have internalized at some level, either conscious or subconscious, that that their job is actually to be a sort of a de facto messaging consultant for the GOP. Yeah. And that what conservatives are supposed to do is get Republicans elected. And there's an analog to that and something that you said where you said, you know, Paul Ryan conservatism, there isn't a great political market for that. And what some of the sort of Catholics are trying to do is find something that does fit the market, whatever. That doesn't seem to me to be the job of Catholic intellectuals either, right? I mean, like that that seems to me, no matter how sincere it is or or well-motivated or any of these kinds of things, that seems to me a, a, a similar form of corruption um, of yeah. know, what – what you're supposed to be out. But remember, they're also reaching, I mean, the first things people are much more interested, I think, Catholics in general, much more interested in reaching out to converts, right? Or, or, mm. or convincing people of the rightness of their theology in there. That's the, that's a thing. And I think you, I would argue that if you're arguing for this sort of libertarian, you know, political uh, economic agenda, it's going to make it difficult to do the other, to do the thing of, you know, saving souls and doing whatever else you may be doing. Yeah, I, I don't see them as being foot soldiers. I don't think Rusty Reno is trying to be a foot soldier for the Republican Party. I completely agree with you. I, I mean, I, I would kind of argue that one of the, one of the, the, <laughs> the, the conservative movement starts to go downhill when Irving moves the public interest from New York to Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, and once conservatism becomes a Washington, and again, I, I live in Washington, work there. I know you're, I, I love it, but there's a sense that it become became too tied to the Republican Party and to the political needs there. Um, you know, I, in a lot of ways, you know, I like the fact that I moved out of Washington as much as I like Washington and miss Washington. You know, it, it allowed me to think in ways that I think sometimes gets limited when you're in DC, right? And when you're stuck in that moment and you're, you know, you're always talking about that political moment or what someone is arguing in the latest New York times. Um, yeah. When, when the conservative movement became much too much of kind of a lot, and I don't want to get into like conservatism Inc. I'm not trying to do mm-hmm. that, but po- especially politically when it became much more of a DC centered, DC focused place, um, I think that was it was a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think Irving's move to was Washington was seen as very important at the time, uh, and it was, yeah, it was se- symbolic. symbolic. I mean, he didn't he wasn't he didn't do anything terrible there. No, no, it just no, was no. A, 
you know, and, it yeah. ma- and it actually made and he also moved for personal reasons too. And there's personal right. reasons he wanted to move. Um, and New York in the eighties wasn't, you know, wasn't such a great place. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so uh, just to close, I'll tell you one quick story. Um, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but on Twitter, someone posted a picture of these military vehicles parked outside of um, the Cato building on, you know, on 10th and Mass, whatever. And uh, and I did this tweet where I just said, congratulations, Senator, well played, Senator Holly. <laughs> and uh, uh, sort of one of my Twitter friends, uh, this guy named Haiku Jonah on Twitter, has this had this response. He said, First they came for the libertarians, and I said, "They're on Tenth and Mass Ave, <laughs> officer." <laughs> and, um, it's sort of the spirit of the times. Well, anyway, like we used to say, you know, when the revolution comes, Jonah, we're on the list. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I think you're. I, I think you're. Well, yes, we're we're on the list, right? We're on the list. Um, yeah. and if the list is not in alphabetical order. <laughs> I'll go before you, but you're on the list. Yeah. Right? I'll save you a sp- I'll save you a cot next to mine. Sure, yeah, they're drawing up the list right now. I think, Dan. <laughs> All right, Professor. Thank- great to see you. As great always, to you. thank you, Jonah. All right, take care. Okay, so Vin has left the building, as it were, and um, I got to go write a column. Uh, I don't know if listeners like listening to me and Vin talk, but Vin is one of the people I actually just really like to talk to, and he knows a lot of things about a lot of stuff. Um, and, um, and he's a dear old friend of mine. So, you know, if you don't like it, suck it. Um, so, uh, if you have a chance and you're a paid member of the dispatch, uh, you can check out my, um, uh, my midweek epistle on, uh, systematic or on systemic racism, which I think a lot of people misuse and misunderstand. And, um, and uh, tonight, it's probably too late for you to find to hear about this here, but we're going to do another Dispatch Live. So the next time it comes up, they're a lot of fun, and you get to see me drink in real time. So if you're hearing this too late to, to listen to it tonight, um, uh, hello from the future. And um, other than that, I don't have too much to report here. We're still getting a lot of negative feedback on the... Um, on the theme music, and I think one of the things that people don't understand is that 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 uh, discordant sound at the very beginning is act, actually the 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 righteous call of chastisement from the North American Carolina dog known as Zoe. Um, and it was not someone's attempt at uh, uh, musical euphony, but rather it is the. Um, is the glorious call of the wild incorporated into um, what I think is a kind of a cool drum solo. But, you know, we are nothing if not servants of the people when we choose to be servants of the people. So uh, please let us know, uh, you know, you know, w- whether you can live with it, whether you can, whether you like it. Um, it's always hard to tell with these things, whether most people, where you only hear from the people who like to complain. Every single music that we've had on here, um, has had it's like when we did redesigns at national review online everyone complains everyone complains everyone complains and then you do something new and then they all start saying i liked it better the old way and um every single new every single intro music that we've had here we've had more complaints um than praise for and then when we changed it we've had more people say i like the old music better so 
there's not necessarily a logical or factual inconsistency between those two positions, um, but I sometimes think that that there probably is one. So anyway, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Um, we'll get a solo ruminant thing tomorrow. Um, I'm sure there won't be anything to talk about in the news. And uh, if you can swing being a paid member of the Dispatch community, we would really appreciate it. Just go to thedispatch.com and sign up. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.